Let's do a little week in IndyCar listener Q&A episode. All brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Hi, I'm Marshall Pruitt. We uh, happen to do this little weekly gathering, which is among my favorite things to do. All powered by the questions you send in that shapes our conversation. The questions put together by our friend Jerry Sudduth. Greatly appreciate me some Jerry Siddeth, by the way. Recording this uh, without an exact ability to then post it. Why is that? Well, had my laptop fail Saturday at the 12 hours of Sebring with about two hours left, I think. Maybe three hours left. I forget how many hours, but not far from the end of the 12 hours of Sebring, I had my laptop uh, just absolutely meltdown after finishing download from my camera and normally that shouldn't be a big showstopper uh, use a two different online cloud-based backup services and yada 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 was very i guess fortunate to have pulled the trigger on ordering a new laptop about two weeks ago um, and so it happened to show up the day I got home, Monday, very thankful. Only problem, as I have found, is there are some gaps in the cloud-based constant capturing and uploading and saving of items, and didn't catch it while it was happening, and I'm kind of paying the price. So here we are, Wednesday at 4.32 p.m., uh, we would normally be doing a racing family show in Twitter spaces right now. I'm just running way behind here. My co-host and partner, Chris Wheeler, is currently dealing with a migraine. So we'll try and do that tomorrow. But for the most part, I've been absolutely stuck in neutral uh, this week and unable to do a whole heck of a bunch of stuff that I wanted to. So have a bunch of video and other things from Sebring been wanting to produce uh, but the very basic thing of being able to take the audio being captured and then produce that and upload that um, I gotta wait till uh, some things get done downloading and also some hard drive content extracting is done later tonight to then be able to assemble everything and output some podcasts so Apologies for the little long explanation here to open the show, but it is very strange to record a podcast knowing that I can't do anything with it for just a little bit, but I uh, have made some really good notes on some things I'm going to do here in the coming days to make sure that whenever this thing melts down, I will have all kinds of stuff sitting ready to download wherever I am and have no real delays whatsoever in getting back in gear. Last little note for you, if you are a newer listener or even an older listener and just want to join a family, uh, we have a little something called the Pruday. It's the first four letters of my last name and the word day. Pruday, named after, based after my favorite WWE tag team, the New Day. Uh, this is an amazing group of listeners of the podcast that have come together, form their own listener group. Uh, they might talk about what we do here on the show a little bit, but more than anything, 
These are just big racing fans, really cool, positive people, funny people. So just looking for some folks to really enjoy your racing with or widen your existing network of friends who love racing. Just suggest uh, maybe joining them. Uh, They have a Discord group. There's another one on Twitter, which I don't know if that group's full, but a couple hundred folks are part of it. And if you'd like to join in, see uh, what this little racing family is about, this Pruday group, send an email. I think you'll get an automated response. I'm not a member of it, nor should I be. uh, But a lot of folks that I really care for and care about and have come to know, and they, many of them, have become very good friends uh, separate from racing. So just really cool to see this happen. Send an email if you'd like to join in. Give it a try. Prude Rocks, P-R-U-E-D-A-Y-R-O-C-K-S, Rocks at gmail.com. And uh, you'll be welcomed in, and there are some really cool people there who, uh, they're also pretty hilarious too, but positivity is really the thing. I'm not saying they're never critical about stuff, but by and large, this is not the uh, fairly acidic experience I often see going on on Twitter or Facebook or otherwise. So, prudayrocks at gmail.com. All right, what are we going to do? The official stupid sound of my show. Where are we starting this episode? And we've got a lot of questions, y'all. A whole bunch. So I normally try and keep the show to an hour or less. Do my best here. Uh, We have IndyCar500 asking, what's your take on F1 allegedly infringing on IMS's trademarks in their advertising? Uh, Know nothing about it care nothing about it uh that would be something between billionaires and billionaires to fight over um i give zero farts so if assuming that the question is pointing to something that is factual i'll let people who live a very different life than the rest of us worry about such things uh will flip 29 says hey marshall mark miles was in argentina this week Talking about hosting a race there, what if anything? Have you heard about this? And do you think it would end up being a non-points race? I know that when Ricardo Junco's put this entire thing on a couple of months ago, during the off-season, did the barnstorming down in his home country of Argentina, went to two different tracks, brought one of his cars down, Augustine, Augustine Canapino did the driving, um... This whole thing was not only done to show support, rally interest, hopefully garner some local sponsorship or domestic sponsorship, I should say, all of which has been very successful. But there was also a big hope, because this is what Ricardo told me at the time, Mark Miles, Penske Entertainment CEO, uh, and even the governor of Indiana, both were invited to come down and see and experience this firsthand for reasons I don't know, didn't follow up on. Again, I don't really care too much about. They weren't there. So this happened. Luckily, they captured a lot of video. A lot of positive things were seen. It was very clear that there was a big and robust audience there for this. Nothing but positives. So would say that Mark showing up to look, and not just Mark, but also Michael Montry, who's one of the big players, Penske Entertainment VP, but... Uh, uh, Michael is someone who is centrally involved in the events that go on to the calendar. Uh, Tony Cotman, 
who is whose NZ consulting firm, Kotman, has created all kinds of circuits throughout the years. A, a, on top of being a race director and former crew chief and all kinds of things in IndyCar, he is very much of a racing circuit expert. And so this wasn't just a token appearance by a figurehead from Penske Entertainment. This was the team you would bring to make a real serious uh, assessment as to whether this could be possible. Uh, the track itself, uh, I am very confident in saying, is at minimum FIA Grade 2, which is IndyCar's minimum standard. So I believe the track is fully compliant in terms of safety standards and grading. If IndyCar were to race there, I'm sure they would ask for certain things to be added. That's just normal whenever IndyCar goes to someone else's track for the first time. They normally point out some things that they would like added or adjusted. That's not a critical statement. It's just a fact of what happens. But this seemed like a very real effort being expended by IndyCar to take a look. What would it take for IndyCar to go there? Money. And that, too, is not a critical statement. That's just another hard fact. So not just money in terms of prize money and uh, appearance fee and, you know, sanction fee and whatever paid from the track or the local government to IndyCar, but also the getting everything there part. Now, it's a little bit of a drive, (laughs) okay? Now, are we talking actually dispatching a full paddock full of transporters? Or are we talking about what we used to do when we would go to Brazil, go to Japan, go to Australia, go wherever, and that is everything loaded into large jumbo jets and pit equipment and whatever else? That's not a small number. If that part can be satisfied on top of a sanction fee and whatever else, If they are able to raise the funds to make everything happen that is needed to get the cars and equipment down to Argentina for this, I would say there is a great chance of this taking place. That's just the one sticking point, though, that is very different from a, hey, do you want to go to Monterey, Mexico? Do you want to go to Circuit Gilles Villeneuve in uh, Practice France, a.k.a. uh, Quebec in good old Canada? This is a longer haul. If the promoters can cover everything it takes to get them there, then all of a sudden you have a serious starting point to hopefully make something happen. Um, where this would be interesting to see is whether it be points, non-points. At least as we have heard Mark Miles in particular speak about this for years, well prior to Penske Entertainment's purchase of IndyCar. He's floated this long-standing concept of a international season opener. And that being a non-points thing. We're already starting the season in... Last year it was late February. This year it was early, the beginning of March. But we're already starting the season pretty early. We think about where other things fall on the domestic calendar, at least. We have the Rolex 24, usually last weekend of January. They now have the roar before the 24 is the weekend prior. So since 
I believe about 50% of IndyCar's full-time entrants also have IMSA GTP or, or related programs. number of their drivers take part in the Roar and the Rolex 24. Many of their crew, whether it's mechanics, engineers, whatever, take part as well. Just saying that if we're talking late second half of January, that's already taken. So that's not a real option. Um, Daytona 500, NASCAR's big season opener is what? Usually middle-ish of February, right? And that takes up about a week uh, prior to the race itself. So that's kind of sort of consumed. Just saying, the, the idea of things being relatively free and clear for IndyCar to do a preseason international visit that might be non-points and then kick off the full season calendar points scoring calendar as we've done the last couple of years late february early march i'm just not totally sure where i see a international non-point season opener fitting in which could be wrong could be 100 percent wrong and maybe that's something that they've decided we're going to do it between the Rolex 24 and Daytona again I don't know I don't even again I'm not saying like this is a done deal I'm just trying to think forward a little bit here if I'm looking at the way the calendar is currently constructed we have what a month between the first and second race and I might be off by a day or two but effectively we have more or less a month between St. Pete and Texas, now that Texas has come way forward on the calendar. If I'm looking at March, well, what do we always have in the middle of March? We have the 12 hours of Sebring. Yet again, half of IndyCar's paddock is here or there for that. Do they try and wedge something in down in Argentina right after, right before, right after St. Pete, uh, the week before Texas or similar? Not totally sure. And so that's why, just to close on this, if we use the calendar IndyCars had both last year and this year, 17 races, nearly identical pacing, uh, and, and where things fit month to month, I don't exactly know where they would jam a preseason non-points visit to Argentina in. And I'd like to think they would try and fill something in during this month between rounds one and two. But Sebring, yet again, is right smack dab in the middle of that. So that doesn't make it just super obvious to say, yep, put it in halfway through that gap and off we go. Um, I would also just say we're heading to Texas here shortly. I'll put a little story up on Racer. Having spoken with the track where they tell me ticket sales are up from last year and said without giving me any numbers, did at least give a, a shade of encouragement that, yeah, you know, we're, we're happy with what we've seen with the increase in ticket sales. Is it enough, though, to bring IndyCar back in 2024? I don't know. Obviously, we will have to see what the grandstands look like, if it's enough of a moneymaker for uh, the, the track and the promoter who owns the circuit, or if this is something that might not have a long future. And then all of a sudden seemingly Argentina could have a prime spot on the calendar to fall into. So thanks for that. 
Uh, Will Flett, 29. Stuart Arif, you had a bit of a similar question, kind of covered that off. Daniel Ingleton as well. Um, let's see, what else? Jeffrey May just asking, is there a reason for the extremely long break between St. Pete and Texas? You mentioned it. I feel like St. Pete was a year ago at this point. I know what you mean. Uh, <laughs> I can tell you creatively, uh, I've been scratching my, my head a little bit on, all right, uh, what exactly am I going to talk about right now in terms of stories to write? Because there's just not a ton with uh, such a long break between the two races. But I mean, we tr- last year had IndyCar dropping Texas right on top of Sebring, that went over like the proverbial fart in church to where everybody said, don't do that again. Thankfully, IndyCar has not, but that also means we do have this extended break between the first and second rounds. Couldn't tell you what all is in town in St. Pete uh, that might take attention away, but I, I wouldn't be mad if the season started a week later um, or said another way if there was less of a gap between the first and second rounds so it kind of has the old Juan Montoya it is what it is right now in terms of why I mean there's just nothing else for them to put in at the moment and as we just discussed well hey couldn't we drop in Argentina well again that middle of March Sebring date is just an annual fixture that doesn't go away and that would not be a good thing for uh, for IndyCar to do knowing uh, how hardcore um, so many IndyCar teams are with their IMSA programs starting in 2023. Uh, what do we go to? And Jameen kind of covered off Texas sales. Again, I wish I had a number for you of it's up X percent, but having at least spoken to the track and gotten a feel for how they were describing it, um, they were encouraged, but they were not saying, oh, yeah, it's going to be night and day difference from year to year. Um, I mean, look, I did actually make... A little note. A good step in the right direction was how it was characterized. Um, All right. Uh, Eric Franklin, you're one of a few people who have asked, is the upcoming Linus Lundqvist test at Texas business as usual at RLL, or is this more pressure on Jack Harvey? Learned a little bit more about that. I believe what we're going to see, and I could be wrong, um, but I know Catherine Legg will be doing her refresher, uh, getting in and, and getting up to speed, having not been in an uh, IndyCar for a good long while. She will be part of that test on Monday at Texas, uh, the day after the race. I'm not sure if it's a case of Cat doing the refresher, them changing the pedals and seatbelt um, links and whatnot to fit Linus and then him taking over in the same car or if he will be in a car of his own. But uh, more along the lines of for Linus would be looking at that as a evaluation test. Uh, And so they will be looking to Linus to not just get a feel for him, but also I'm sure they will have him trying various setup uh, changes and component changes on the car to give feedback there to hopefully benefit the team when they uh, head to the Indy Open test in the latter portion of April to prepare for the Indy 500. So that's the test part, Eric. (laughs) Should Jack be feeling pressure? Absolutely. Uh, But here's the thing. 
it should not, for him, be Linus specific, right? Under thanks to former RLL president Piers Phillips, uh, Estonia's Yuri Vips has come into the building and tested in Jack's place when he was not cleared to drive. So, granted, from what I understand, he was his replacement for Jack or his standing in for Jack at the barber test did not lead to a whole lot of fireworks and impressiveness there. But regardless, there's already somebody who's on our RLL's radar and has been that certainly should be keeping Jack's backside warm, knowing someone else might be replacing him if he doesn't perform. And Linus, for sure, is just yet another. So this is not a team. And I'm I'm really happy to say this, Eric. This is not a team that is willing to be happy and accepting of the status quo. Well, you know, we gave it a try and we got what we got and we'll we'll give it another try next year. Uh, They are spending a ton of money. They have a ton of sponsor involvement, activation, you name it. They are doing big things, trying to get better and move up into that big three-ish range of the top entrance in IndyCar. And I will say the same thing for Graham Rahal and Christian Lundgaard. Uh, If either of them are showing that they are not up to the task, I would hope the team would say, hey, uh, once your contract is up, you're out. Or if you've got a buyout clause that we consider to be affordable, you're gone. I don't think that will happen with Graham or Christian, but just saying, I don't think this is specific to Jack I, in terms of how the team is looking at him or treating him in some sort of different way than they would anyone else. The difference here is Jack has created a bit of a situation for himself where he deserves that heightened scrutiny. And so... It is incumbent upon him, and I'm confident he will do this, is to relieve that pressure by performing. He's got an amazing race engineer in Alan McDonald to work with. The two of them will do very good things this year. I just can't tell you yet whether that is that number 30 RLL Honda will shadow Graham in the number 15 and Christian in the number 45 or if he'll be ahead of them, in between them, or behind them. If he can at least shadow them and be close, I think he's going to be in an okay place when they consider what to do with him, knowing that his contract is up at the end of the year. If he is a somewhat consistent P3 among RLL's three drivers, that's where... Harder questions will be asked, right? There's always going to be someone who is last in a multi-car team. That can't be avoided. What you want to avoid, and I'm overstating the obvious here, is to be the one who is last on a pretty consistent basis. So I don't know if Jack is going to outrun Graham and Christian the first couple of rounds as... Jack and Alan are really getting to know each other and how to work with one another. But I would say that 
if we're not seeing some really encouraging signs by the Indy 500 and throughout June, I think for sure the Linus Lundqvists and the Yuri Vipsises and the whomever else's will probably be getting a lot more attention about should we be putting your name on that car in 2024 and beyond. So why don't we go to Daniel Summersgill, who says this is sent on behalf of Randall uh, from the Prude Discord group. We're taking submissions from Prude Discord now. What is this world coming to? Uh, kidding aside, thanks, Randall, and thank you, Daniel, for firing this in. So do you think that the Thermal Club preseason testing venue was specifically picked and possibly funded by Vice so they would have a cool venue to film at rather than Sebring's austere surroundings? Uh, curious to see if IndyCar goes back to Sebring next year when Vice is gone. Well, who says Vice would be gone? Um, there's nothing I've said or I've read that has said this is a one-year thing only and never, ever could it happen for year two. Um, the Thermal Club has been on IndyCar's radar for a good long while. Uh, the major, major talk for it took place 11 months ago which was long before uh, Vice and the CW and any of that was selected for doing this docu-series so there is no linkage whatsoever also uh, if we're in a place where production companies are choosing where IndyCar spring training is held, uh, we're, in, we're in pretty bad shape. So thankfully, this was something that has been discussed for a while, but really started to gain momentum in April of 2022, a long, 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 long time before the 100 Days to Indy thing was ever even close to being both finalized as a thing and then done with the CW and Vice. So uh, this 100 Days to Indie concept I heard about last year, I think May might have been the first time I heard about it. I don't remember exactly, but uh, it had been floated to a variety of streaming outlets as it was told to me. So this certainly, again, was not a case of the people who would be making the docuseries feeding back to IndyCar. Uh, it was the exact opposite. So, anyways, interesting theory, though. Uh, Chaparral 2J says, of the drivers who have yet to compete on an oval, who do you think will adapt to Texas the best and the quickest? And will any of that carry over to the 500? Or is the Speedway just too different? Huh. Well, why don't we take a look and run through our rookies very quickly and come up with some thoughts. So we have Benjamin Peterson. AJ Foyt Racing. Um, I'd love to say that Marcus Armstrong was doing it for Chip Ganassi Racing, but we have a Chip Ganassi Racing rookie by the name of Takuma Sato. Does he count? Unfortunately, he doesn't. Uh, really, it's just not that big of a pool between Benjamin, Stingray Rob at Dale Coin Racing with Rick Ware Racing, and Augustine Canapino at Hunko's Hollinger Racing. Um... Yeah, uh, this is where I tell you that time is a flat circle. I wish I remembered that whole uh, that whole monologue. 
uh, Augustine, the oval rookiest of rookies. So I would not want to put him up there in P1 uh, to answer. And then after that, it's Stingray and, and Benjamin, neither of whom have done a ton of oval racing because modern-day junior open wheel in America is not one that uh, does a ton of oval training. So, I mean, I'm flipping a coin here. And let's go with Stingray Rob. Coin folks tend to be pretty darn sharp on ovals. I'm not saying the the Foyt folks aren't, but um, I'm going to go with Stingray here. Also knowing that uh, he's got a little bit more experience than Benjamin. And saying all that, I absolutely expect for Augustine to be the top rookie because this guy uh, just is not someone who conforms to any expectations, and I love that about the guy. Uh, Steve Grinstead, how you doing, Steve? Marshall, any updates to the rumor of a third engine supplier for IndyCar? You say, hashtag me personally, I'd like to see Ford and Toyota back in the series. Well, pardon my French, but shit, so would I, Steve. <laughs> I'd love to see one or both, uh, any additional. Um, I mean, I will ask the next time I check in on this topic, as I wrote in December... At the time of the, hey, so everybody who's currently here has built these new 2.4 liter motors, but we're not going to use those. Uh, we're going to stick with the same 2.2s. Um, as I wrote in those stories, which led to Roger Penske telling me off, and uh, we still haven't spoken. And I don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon, but um, this makes it impossibly hard to capture a third manufacturer or fourth manufacturer, Steve, because we don't have something new for them to buy into. We would have them having to build something and come in with 10, 11, 12 years of a knowledge and experience deficit to Chevy and Honda. Those 2012 V6 turbos that they built, these motors today are radically evolved from what those were back then. But keep in mind that all the things they've learned year after year, all the things they have rehomologated and improved and so on, they've gone through this whole process to get to where they are today, which are engines which are just phenomenal. It would be really hard for me to sell any auto manufacturer to come in and make a 2.2 liter twin turbo V6 to go up against folks that have 10 plus years experience with the same exact design, who've gone through all the mistakes, blown up motors, went through all the headaches, all the learning curves and pain to get to the amazing, dang near bulletproof things we have today. The idea that you'd be able to get anyone to say, yep, we're coming in and going to just fail massively for the next couple of years to hopefully get to where our competitors are right now, um, boy, that might be a super, super hard thing to pitch. So I don't know if we're going to see any new 
auto manufacturers playing until IndyCar says, yep, uh, we're going to go to a new formula. Who knows? Maybe it's the resumption of the 2.4. Maybe it's a 1.8. I have no idea. But I think really the answer to this question, unless there is something totally shocking that happens and a manufacturer says, yep, we're coming in <laughs> right now and accepting this massive time and experience deficit, I think we're just waiting to hear what IndyCar's next formula might be in that time, whatever it is, whatever year that might be, would be the most realistic window for uh, a third and or fourth to join in. James Lau, you ask, MP, basic question here, and I apologize if it's been asked in the past. Uh, what is your routine for monitoring the race? Are you holed up in the media center with headphones or watching Peacock and time again scoring on another screen? All depends on what it is, James. For an IndyCar race, I hate to admit it, but uh, it is often the most concise, most pure way to follow and capture what is happening by indeed sitting in the media center where often the race is being displayed on a large screen. Um, get a lot of multi-screen and visual opportunities there flip side to that is being on pit lane can absolutely be a huge benefit because keeping in mind we're talking texas what are we going to have like 28 ish cars they're not going to show every single pit stop of every car they're not going to be able to show you you know hey so and so came in in 10th and left in 15th place and if the team doesn't tweet out what happened or tell you why or put it in their press release Again, you won't know until you hopefully go and find that driver. But being able to be there and keep an eye on things, sometimes you see, aha, uh, so-and-so lost the wheel nut, and that's the reason why they had a problem. Or they had an amazing stop, and that's why they picked up three spots. Or, 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 or. Um, so it really depends. Um, normal routine is to try and stay in the media center to have that bit of isolation where you can focus, make notes, uh, and then in the last five, ten minutes of the race, head down to pit lane to be able to capture folks when they get out of the car, talk to them about whatever, do the end-of-day videos that we do. Um, another thing, too, is since I'm also writing the race reports, um, waiting until the race is over and have spoken to folks and interviewed folks and done the end of day video and whatever, and get back to the media center half hour to an hour later, and then starting the race report doesn't always work for me. So uh, I tend to write as the race is going on. If you look at what I've done on racer for the last year or two, I'll have the race report at the top and then below it the as it happened which is just kind of my running notes as to what went on if you didn't get a chance to watch it uh, it'll at least give you a little bit of a play-by-play -play. one thing i've tried to do a little more of to finish on this james and i just need to keep doing it and do a better job of it is i have a little small laptop that i bring with me to the appointments for my wife that we've been going to for the last many years I just need to keep reminding myself to bring that because what I find is, well, hey, again, I don't necessarily always want to be stuck in the media center while the race is going on, being out 
near the action and getting a feel for what's going on live can certainly help inform me at a faster rate. Try and bring that little laptop with me. So even if it's just propping it up on a piece of pit equipment, you know, out behind someone's pit box or whatever, that way I can have AirPods in or whatever, listening to uh, the delightful Lee Diffie and Hinch and Townie uh, via Peacock, maybe not necessarily watching, but at least listening. But I've been doing a little bit more of that too, using the Peacock app on my phone. So yeah, the answer here is it changes and it's constantly evolving. You'd probably think since I've been doing this now for 15, 16, however many years, I'd have some formula worked out. I don't. And I'm always asking myself, are you doing things the right way? Should you stop doing this? Should you do more of that? What's the best formula? I haven't come up with it yet. So that maybe just speaks to the fact that uh, I haven't gotten there yet. But thanks for asking, man. Uh, what do we go to? Ed Joris, whatever happened to Honda's offer to run Linus Lundqvist in Super Formula? Uh, and what are Linus's current plans for 2023? Um, as you might have seen, Ed, with the story that I posted, I think, yesterday, uh, Linus will be testing for RLL. Uh, and Bobby Rahal has mentioned he hopes, would like to run him potentially in a couple of races later in the year. Um, that's all that Linus has right now. Uh, I know that there is a test uh, he has in Europe, possibly with one of those electrified type open wheel cars, but he has no racing plans at the moment. Uh, he'd mentioned to me a couple months ago about the IndyCar test and asked to keep that quiet, which has been done. So now it's out. Um, so all that's good there. But yeah. I really do hope that not only the test goes well for him Monday um, after the Texas IndyCar race, but that RLL does indeed uh, get him into a car for a couple of races because I think he would show them that he needs to be in a car full-time next year. And whether that's them expanding to four full-time or if there are any driver changes, uh, who knows. But yeah, I think that kid's got something. Uh, where do we go? Where do we go? Ed, you're asking about would Tech Pro Barriers open things up on street courses as well? I feel like we spoke about this in a recent episode, so I'll, I'll skip that one. Uh, our pal Victoria Morell. So you probably recorded this or you're in the process of recording. Well, I am, which is why I'm reading your question, Victoria. So thank you. So as my husband and I were talking about the incoming hybrid engines uh, as he just purchased a hybrid himself and whether or not they would still be able to use the paddle shifters as it seems, at least road car hybrids, uh, well, they need the computer and the automatic engine to perform at its optimum efficiency. Any insights on this? Yes, indeed. There will be no changes to the shifting method within IndyCar. It will still be paddle shifting. Um, IndyCar is allowed two different types of shifting control methods. Uh, through 2022, and one of the less interesting and definitely non-sexy rule changes from 22 to 23 uh, was IndyCar standardizing the more modern uh, electronic control of uh, shifting. So that's all been done, as I was told, to make sure that 
when we do go hybrid, we do have the uh, the latest, the greatest, the fastest, and the bestest. So uh, nothing will be changing when the hybrid uh, power plants come online. We will indeed have the same paddle shifting that you see now in IndyCar, and uh, I would imagine is a part of uh, whatever awesome hybrid vehicle that you have in the family now. Uh, Steve Bonick. See, I remembered. I didn't mangle your last name, Steve. So I did that at least once or twice. Now I can go back to mangling it and angering your daughter. I'm sorry. Uh, says, I'm sending this because I'm really curious on your take. When uh, Callum Eilat's contract is up at Hunko's Hauling or Racing, does the lure of driving for a bigger team to go after a championship cause him to leave? You say, I love everything the JHR team is doing and hope he stays. But I also understand uh, if you were to leave, what say you, MP? Um, the moment he's able to jump into a championship contending situation, he is jumping, Steve. Uh, retelling some stories a little bit from last year. But again, I realize we have new listeners every week, so I don't, obviously don't mind doing that. Everyone denied this. Everyone said, never happened. Totally wrong. Um, I even had some very dear friends uh, trying to convince me that this was all wrong when I knew that they were indeed making up stories. Um, Callum was at the top of the list of folks to replace Alex Pillow at Chip Ganassi Racing in that number 10 Honda. And whether that was during last season when there was a question as to whether he might continue driving that number 10 car or if he was going to be leaving the team at the end of the season, stood down by the team, whatever it was, whatever scenario that would have had Polo not in the 10 car, I can tell you for sure, without question, a fact that the desire to have Callum Eilat as the replacement for Polo was a real, real thing. Whether it would have gone anywhere, I can't tell you contractually if Callum would have been able to take up that offer, but I can tell you that um, that would have been something to jump into right away if uh, that door had opened. So, obviously, Junkos Hollinger Racing was very impressive at round one. We know, again, not not saying anything negative here, but we know that it took a little bit of uh, crashy, crashy, crashy stuff for them to run as strong as they did. But regardless, if Hunko's Hollinger Racing can put Callum in a top five, top six position at, by the end of the season, I mean, of course, if a Penske, Ganassi, Andretti, uh, McLaren is calling, those are hard, hard uh, inquiries to turn down. But if there's an ability for him with his contract to go drive for one of the big three, big four teams, he's not here to hope to improve a couple positions per season with any team, but have no real hope of winning a championship. He is only wired to go after Vic Poles, victories, and championships. Whatever is going to get him to that state as fast as possible is going to be the thing that he pursues. So this is yet another scenario where it is really uh, in, in Hunko's Hollinger Racing's best interest, if they're capable, 
of showing Callum, you, of course, we're not as big as those teams, but we are giving you the ability to run right up there with them. So stay here and let's continue doing big things together. Just saying, though, uh, if he continues on his current path of being as impressive as he is, and if there's any kind of out clause, again, who knows if his contract's up at the end of the year. I genuinely don't know. But I can tell you his kind of talent, which I think most people in the series regard as very serious, is the exact kind of thing. A Michael Andretti, Roger Penske, Tim Sindrick, Chip Ganassi, Mike Hull, uh, Gavin Ward, Zach Brown uh, would be interested in or should be interested in. So it's going to be hard for Ricardo if they have a very, very good year, but just not quite title contending year because that's where other teams say we're going to find a way to take this person off of your hands and the team hasn't done quite enough for that person to say oh I'm going to fight them um, because I want to stay here so and I don't really think that's specific to Callum just anybody who would be in his position would be looking to say yep uh, I know that if I were to go I would absolutely be fighting for a title Next season, uh, right turn lever, you're asking, per race, there are one oval uh, to two road and street course tire specifications present. How many different specifications are used over the course of the entire season, and do they change in season? Oh, brother. Um, I don't know. I will try and remember to ask our friend Kara Kristolik next time I see her, but yeah, this is not something I have memorized because they often do different tire specs, not just per road and street course. And I'm not saying every road and street course has its own, but there are often some little changes from here or there based on the uh, track surface uh, condition and also just the wear rate that they've seen historically. So it's not like they build, quote, a street course tire that gets used at every street course. There's often some very subtle changes uh, between them. Let's see. Arthur Kinney, you say, with the increased difficulty of booking Carb Day acts due to Ticketmaster and Live Nation restrictions, has IMS thought about how a concertless carb day in the future might look? And is there any risk of a return to a closed-door final practice? I can't tell you what IMS has or hasn't thought about, Arthur. Um, I don't know if I've seen any great difficulty in them being able to book acts because they tend to pay a pretty decent amount of money if you look at the size and, and uh, popularity of those acts. So I would have to think as long as they're paying good money, Ticketmaster, Live Nation, and whomever will offer up the, uh, will offer acts up for them. I cannot ever see a return to a closed door final practice. Um, this has been such a big part of the pre-race festivities and shows that, yeah, um, Again, I always reserve the fact that I could be completely wrong, but on both topics here, I'm seeing two items that just are not really uh, rooted in reality in terms of being worried about, so I wouldn't sweat things. Uh, that 52 car asks, as we get not too far from the end, in discussing fuel saving, um, I think you're 
talking about Scott Dixon here. Uh, in discussing fuel saving, he said something like, if your car is set up for that. Um, aside from engine tuning, what kind of setup changes are made for fuel saving? And how do those changes differ between lift and coast versus engine mapping? Um, we're talking about how you were setting up a car to save fuel. It's not so much of a actual thing you're doing on the setup pad itself. So uh, I do think Dixie was talking more about the engine mapping side uh, than anything else. So uh, again, if I remember to ask him, uh, I will. But yeah, uh, I think this m could be misconstrued as something he was talking about. You know, uh, we changed the springs to this and done that to the, the ride height and whatever. And, you know, I don't think that was so much what he was referring to. Um, but yeah, if I remember, I'll try and drill down on that a little bit farther. Uh, let's see. Riley Stricker. How you doing, Riley? Say with hybrids coming next year, will that take a redesign of the back of the car? And is the addition of the hybrid unit going to lengthen the wheelbase of the car? So there are some new things happening at the back of the good old Delar DW12, but uh, nothing that is truly brand new that I know of if we're talking real, you know, driveline components, that would be uh, like something new to the eye, meaning like, oh, the shape and just the, the general creation of that is different than what we've seen. Um, the cars will have new bell housing. The bell housing is the metal structure that sits between the transmission and the engine. It's basically the bridge between the engine and the transmission, bolts everything together uh, that is being redone from aluminum to magnesium to reduce weight and same thing is also being done with the extract gearbox which is getting a new lightweight uh, case so these things are being done strictly to take weight off the back of the car knowing that the energy recovery system is going to indeed add weight to the back of the vehicle uh, I believe we're also going to be seeing stouter, bigger drive shafts. And I believe we will be seeing bigger, more robust brakes. Again, the car is going to be heavier, um, so we have more mass to stop. So you need to size the braking system to match that. The ERS system is... A phenomenal design, Riley, when it comes to packaging. So if you've seen any of the GTP 101 tech videos I've done for Racer, if not, you might pay a visit to Racer, the Racer Channel YouTube uh, page there. You'll know that with the spec energy recovery system, energy storage system used in GTP, there are indeed two completely separate modules that work together in the bell housing and the gtp cars you have the unit made by bosch the motor generator unit the mgu uh, that is what harvests energy off of the rear axle under braking or even acceleration uh, but that is the thing that both harvests and then deploys that energy back to the rear axles so generates the uh the electronic horsepower transmits the electric horsepower. 
then in the cockpit of the GTP cars, in the, the passenger seat uh, area, you have the big old well that's created for the battery system. And together, they weigh a lot. <laughs> they weigh a super heck a bunch. IndyCar, knowing that they don't have the space of a GTP car, a two-seater prototype, closed cockpit, they don't have the actual space to go that same route of MGU and the tra uh, bell housing connected to the transmission and then have, having to stick a big battery somewhere else. Their design spec uh, that they sent out waiting for someone to say, yes, we could do it, is a all-in-one system that lives inside the bell housing. And that's exactly what they've come up with. Uh, Molly is the one that Germany of uh, Mala, I, I think is how Jay Fry pronounces it. I just like Molly because it's easy for me to remember. Um, they came up with a design that has the MGU and the quote battery. It's actually a super capacitor based system lives in the bell housing. It's jammed in there like you wouldn't believe but this is a all-in-one system that is a true packaging marvel riley so whenever the world gets to see it um for those who are you know like the tech side i think you're gonna look at it and go wow <laughs> uh, that that is crazy it is you know 11 gallons in a 10 gallon hat but uh that is that is what they've made work and here we are recording this uh, on a Wednesday, we had the most recent uh, hybrid test taking place today at the Speedway. Uh, so, yeah, more progress being made there. Uh, all right, we're going to close here with three questions. Uh, a few weeks ago, you mentioned Augustine Canapino already knew how to debrief, and that could help speed up his learning curve. You say, well, some of your listeners may have a general idea of a debrief, what are a few things we wouldn't have any idea about? Well, since I don't know what you have an idea about, Ron, uh, or anyone has an idea about, I'll just go over a couple of the, the, the general items here. So if we're talking your, your standard post-session debrief, the IndyCar level, very much of a fact-finding mission by the race engineers trying to discern and learn from their driver certain things they're curious about, right? Rarely is it, hey, tell me how the car was. It's rarely, if ever, that general. It tends to be a little bit more specific. Tried a number of things during the session, right? We had a whole, every team has a run plan for their car. The various things they're going to try during that session, whether it's just setup changes, right? We're going to lower something, raise something, add a little bit of something, take something away, whatever it is. You've got that all the way up to, hey, we've got a, one or two different damper builds that we've done. So you're going to want to try this damper configuration we've come up with for the first outing. Then we're going to pit and we're going to bolt on another set of dampers that behave in a different way. And we want to get a read on that. Then we maybe have a third set we're going to try towards the end of the session. Same thing, going to want to get a read on that. You'll get some feedback from the driver during the session, right? But what usually takes place in that post-session debrief is the more hardcore description of what went on. So just knowing that, again, rarely is it just kind of a general, hey, how was your day? 
questions tend to be more guided, following the, the script of what the team did with their run plan, what the driver did or didn't like, areas they thought that were good and can be improved upon, things that didn't work uh, to either stay away from, uh, let's not continue going down that path, or hey, that didn't work, but it felt like if we made this change or that change, it could actually be a positive um, next time out. So what you end up getting from a driver is two things. You have an engine, you have your engineers who are looking for specific information based on the changes and things that they did during the session. Um, also, tire feedback as well. We tried some things. Uh, what did you think, et cetera, et cetera. You also have the driver trying to give some informed opinion of their own about things. So not just feeding back answers to the engineers on what they're asking, what they want to know about, but could have the driver trying to add things on top of that or things that are wholly independent of the things they tried. You know, during this run, I noticed this. I liked that. It could be, hey, I got to follow a you know, driver X in whatever car, and wow, the way that they were putting down the power out of this corner, was, I, that was phenomenal, or I, the car behaved in this way, which ours isn't, but I saw what they did, and that was crazy, and how can we maybe replicate that or go down that path? If you're a fan of, of crime shows, uh, I always think of quality debriefs not too different from the detective sitting across from the perp. Um, and granted, the driver is not necessarily someone who's done anything wrong, but you, in this case, you really do have someone who's trying to pull the person they're sitting across from to get the most valuable information out of to help uh, speed things along and come up with the best ideas that they need to push forward for the next session. So a debrief... It's definitely a two-way street. You have some drivers who are very gifted, very gifted, Ron, at feeling every little thing the car is doing and providing super useful feedback to their team, to their engineers, to then form how they decide to go about executing the next session. Ultimately, unless we're talking about a post-race debrief, and those usually don't happen in that capacity it's usually a written report that gets done um but if you keep in mind the way a, a weekend tends to go first practice second practice qualifying etc there's some sort of time schedule you're working against and so the thing that i think i mentioned or what i was alluding to talking about canapino already knowing how to debrief this isn't a guy who is young and inexperienced and having to learn the ways of a big professional racing organization, how they fit into it, uh, and how to help them expedite their, their processes. This is someone who's been doing this for many, many years. So while he may be a rookie in IndyCar, and he may have a ton to learn and so on and so forth, this is a guy who's going to be able to sit in post first practice session at Texas uh, debrief and give them all kinds of hopefully useful information while he's again still learning about oval racing himself but give them quality and quick pieces of information to then use 
And again, because we have a bit of time constraints often between sessions, it's not like they can sit in there for hours and hours and, well, you know, maybe, and I don't know, and gosh, it was a little like this, but like, no, 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 no. We need sharp answers, critical thinking. We need all of these things in a somewhat precise and expeditious manner because your race engineers need to take this information and say, okay, we tried A, and A worked, so we're going to keep developing down that road. We tried B, we didn't really like that so much, and the driver has told us, oh, no, that was the wrong direction. We're abandoning that. We tried C, and there were some positives there, but not totally sure. So you know what? We're going to go into the second session, going farther down the path of A. We're going to try and develop C a little bit more and see if that produces the speed or the the tire wear benefits we were hoping for or the whatever it might be. And we're going to come up with something else because B we've definitely decided is not not a place to go down. And then that team, those engineers, need to come up with a setup sheet that says, hey, we're going to start off the session continuing down the path of A. And with that in mind, We're going to modify the camber on the left front, and we're going to change this in terms of a wing angle, and we might do this with suspension geometry. Need to take all that debrief information, turn that not only into smart concepts to try in the next outing, but also actual hard numbers to supply to the chief mechanic so they can put the car in the setup pad and make those changes uh, to then start the session and work their next run plan. And they'll finish that session and go through that whole thing again, distill what's good, what's bad, what do we keep, what do we try if we have time, keep moving along that path. That's where a pro like Canapino knows the routine and knows that he doesn't have the luxury of hemming and hawing. I don't know. And let me go think about it and I'll come back in an hour. It's like, Nope, (laughs) we got 30 minutes. Uh, And then here's just one other little thing to think about too, which is maybe even more time sensitive. And it's, so these are the things we just spoke about that we want to try. Uh, And in the second practice session, which is, I'll just make up a number two and a half hours after the first one, We have a whole super, super expensive, super high-powered simulation infrastructure as well. And so you say, you know what? I really think if we keep going down the path of A, that's going to generate more gains. We're ditching B. C, I wonder if we modify things a little bit here and try this direction. That will give us some gains as well. But then I also wonder if we did something a little different with that in another way. Maybe that would be the path to go. Well, hey, sim people, I really like you too. Try this first alternate version of the C and the second alternate version of the C. And let's see what that equates to in terms of lap time, lap speed, etc., etc. So... The simulation stuff, even though computing power is just getting greater by the day, it takes a while. And so you want to be able to say, hey, Sim, get cracking on these things. And this is going to help inform us whether 
the thoughts we have here sitting in the transporter connected via Microsoft Teams or Zoom or whatever it is they're using back to the base, back to wherever with folks that are running various things for them. They cannot be sitting around waiting uh, and given 30 minutes until the next session before they have uh, what they need, what they need to know to be able to run the sim stuff. So bit of a longer explanation here may be wrong, but this is where a pro like Canapino, even though he's new to IndyCar, he will know that he has to come loaded with smart and sharp opinions swiftly to help the team go about its business and get ready for the next session. Uh, Dan the Man says at a recent Texan of Texas event, Will Power noted that Team Penske hasn't been doing too well at Indy, and it seems they've been having trouble since Roger Penske bought IndyCar. How long should we wait before starting an IndyCar version of Curse of the Bambino? Wow, we're working all kinds of old sports uh, themes here. Speaking with uh, Team Penske Managing Director Ron Rizuski, many-time Indy 500 winner with Elio Castro Neves as race engineer back in the day and so on and so forth. Um, I mean, he made it really clear, as if we didn't already know this, but he made it really clear in some of our preseason discussions that, you know, uh, of course we would have liked to have won more races last year while they utterly dominated IndyCar and won the championship and had three of their four drivers play i'm sorry all three drivers place in the top four in the championship but the one glaring competitive omission was the indy 500 as it was the year before and i think as it was the year before uh, it's been a little while uh really since i think the aero screen uh since they have been compet truly competitive at indy will power i believe made the fast nine in qualifying last year but uh, had a decent opening stint but fell back and everyone else was nowhere so yeah um yeah uh let's we how, we're just going to blame babe ruth dan i i think you you definitely found the reason but the thing we know about team penske is they tend not to struggle at something forever. They really do tend to bounce back and get things whipped up into a better, happier state. So um, if they aren't competitive at Indianapolis this year, I will be completely shocked because, what, three or four bad years in a row? And bad, obviously, is not winning, not being second. Um, that just seems like something that uh is an impossibility um got one more to go uh vincent by the way you're asking is vassar sullivan looking to return to the, to the indycar paddock next year uh i mean i know they'd love to be back they were meant to be one of toyota's factory teams had toyota gotten in uh toyota hasn't so i don't see any way for them to get in um so love to be back sure but who's funding it there's no one that i know of funding it to make it happen so uh not that i know of uh ryan caminetti our dear pal uh, you're going to close the show you say mp we seen here chatter over the cool suits being a certain weight penalty for those that don't know how much of a hit on the time sheets is having that system on the car how much of a hit is that really going to be some firmly team cool suit being mandated to keep drivers safe everyone tells me it's about eight pounds with the the cooling fluid in there whatever it is the teams are using uh between the shirt and it is just a shirt a cool shirt uh the hoses and the pump uh and then obviously the liquid inside of it about eight pounds 
you know, on average, and this is just a generic number used over the years, 10 pounds of weight worth about a tenth of a second in lap time. That's the reason why some teams absolutely shy away from its use, unless, you know, they believe their driver is just going to wilt. But you look at how close qualifying happens to be, um, I mean, even in the race, a tenth of a second advantage is something that most could really use to their benefit. So you can understand why from a strictly competitive mindset, there are those who would want their drivers to forego using cool shirts. Um, I don't know why I've asked more than once, pushed more than once saying to IndyCar, just mandate it, right? Mandate the weight. Uh, and so, hey, teams, you can either bolt eight pounds of additional ballast to the car or uh, run the cool system, but eliminate the possibility of a team thinking more about performance than their driver's health. Uh, remove that possibility so that there's no way a team can gain an advantage by running without if everybody has to carry that extra eight pounds, uh, in theory, it'd make it easier for them to say, all right, well, we'll just go with the cool shirt system and um, make sure that our drivers are cool. Now, granted, not every driver wants to wear one. Some genuinely don't want to, and I don't think you can force them to, or I wouldn't recommend forcing them to. But yeah, as long as this can be used as something that is a performance gain while doing that in the name of ignoring what might be in the best interest for your driver i'm not going to be a big big fan of that um thanks to a lot of the rest of you sending questions wario andretti jeremiah uh kind of covered off the uh, harvey on a short leash thing a little bit um link no 10 asking is stingray rob really a stingray he is um first uh fish-based indycar driver fish amphibian no uh i forget exactly what exactly the uh, classification a stingray would fall in but regardless yes he's from under the sea um hey thank you for everything y'all sent in i do uh i do appreciate y'all and this little show that we do and I'm hoping uh, we might have another cool little announcement to make here related to the good old Weekend IndyCar listener Q&A. And on the last little closing topic here, interviewed our pal Scotty McLaughlin yesterday, talking about his cool win at the Sebring 12-hour plus going back to Texas, which he nearly won last year. And so once I am able to post me some of them podcasts that is exactly what i'm going to do and i can't wait and if you can't tell by the sound of my voice it's getting to be a little bit frustrating uh not being quite able to do that yet but uh anyways i'm marshall pruitt this is our little marshall pruitt podcast brought to you by cooper tires the justice brothers and torontomotorsports.com and i'll speak to you next week <laughs>